This morning we're going to expand the field of the meditation instructions to take in the whole area of thoughts. And we've delayed this uh, focus for a few days because thoughts are so tricky. They're very slippery. And as you've probably seen, it's a slippery slope into getting fascinated with their content and losing touch with the present moment. And so it can come to seem that in meditation, thoughts are really the enemy. Oh, thoughts are the thief of our mindfulness. And I can't be mindful if I'm thinking. And good meditation must happen when there aren't any thoughts. But that's really a misunderstanding. Thoughts aren't the enemy. It's not noticing them that is the problem. So what we want to do is bring the same mindful attention to the arising of thoughts as we do to the in-breath, the arising of a sound, a body sensation, an emotion, a hindrance, and so on. So this is our challenge. Can we bring mindfulness into the realm of thinking? And what this means is we have to shift our relationship to thoughts from the ordinary one. I know when I came into meditation, I was pretty locked into the content of all my thoughts. That's where I lived. I really lived in my thoughts and they pretty much occupied every waking moment of every day. Lost in the content, not really aware that that's what was happening. So we're going to shift our relationship into a mindful one that can see thought as another thing that arises, persists, and passes away in the present moment. This is the challenge. And the reason it's challenging is because thoughts are very seductive. Now, if you look closely at the content of thoughts, they tend to be things that arouse our emotions. So it's very easy to get pulled into that content. That's what's seductive about it. The pleasure and pain, the hope and fear, the praise and blame, those all get played out through our thoughts. And yet, if you look at a thought closely, what is it? Let's say most of the time I'll use thoughts to mean a string of words that appear in the mind. But some people think in images, and so images might also be a form of thinking, whichever way it expresses for you. But let's take this string of words that appears in the mind, basically a form of speech, speaking to ourselves but not vocalizing it. If you look closely at it, all it is is a little whisper of words. Over. And in fact, as soon as you notice the thought, what usually happens to it? Poof. And yet when they're not recognized, thoughts have this incredible power. I'd say every major decision we make in life comes out of our thinking. I remember I was in college and I was really fascinated with Zen Buddhism. And so this thought came, I'd really like to see Asia. Then in a blink of an eye, I found myself in Malaysia teaching for two years with the Peace Corps. One thought, two years in Asia. Direct connection. So you could even say our lives are ruled by thought. The world is ruled by thought. But when we look at what a thought is, it's just this slender whisper, poof. Yet, it's the power that we give them that really, that rules the world. So our training in 
meditation will be to see a thought in the present moment, to watch it arise, persist as it expresses itself, and then pass away. So that will be the um, theme of the morning's instructions. And when we get more familiar, it's not easy at first, but when we get more familiar with it, I think as I mentioned in a talk the other night, the whole center of gravity of our being shifts. Instead of living in the world of thought and occasionally touching the present moment, we start to live in this big open space of awareness that's like the sky which is where mindfulness is born. And then thoughts are an occasional puff of smoke in that open spaciousness of awareness. So we can take our home in the space and not in the concepts. So in the meditation, in the guiding this morning, we're going to look at um, kind of three aspects uh, in working with thoughts. One is going to be just beginning to notice them and a suggestion to note them as thinking. The second is going to be taking thought as the primary focus. This is kind of fun. We'll approach it through something we call the thought game. We'll just do that for short periods of time, but it will be, I think, interesting exploration. And then the third thing, I'll give some instructions about dealing with repetitive thoughts because we all have our top 10 list, right? It could be, you know the difficult boss thought, or the partner conflict thought, or the I'm worried about my kids thought, or what's happening with my health on this retreat thought, that we bring up over and over. So we want to start to identify the particular ones that come often and maybe find some names for those and how to work. Okay, I think that's enough of a preamble, so we can go into our Uh, formal meditation at this point. So again, please sit comfortably. Finding in your posture that uprightness that also has a sense of ease and relaxation. (coughs) Connecting first with your anchor. It's the overall body and sitting sounds or breath. And one of the reasons it's helpful to develop a relationship with this focus is that it becomes like a resting place for us. If nothing else strong is going on, we can always come back to this. It's like a meditation home. Then from that home, anything else that comes up that's strong enough to draw the attention, whether it's a sensation, sound, an emotion or mental state or hindrance, we easily let the attention move away from the home base and make that new experience a focus for mindfulness. When the new experience fades, we can return resting in our home base, our home. So as you rest in your meditative home, 
one of the things that will draw your attention from time to time is the arising of a thought. Sometimes we don't notice the arising. Sometimes we don't know we're thinking until we've been in the content for a while, even a few minutes, several minutes, 20 minutes. And then we return to the present moment and we notice, oh, there's been thinking. Then we reconnect with our home base or with the body or sounds. But now see if you can begin to notice a thought as it arises. Sometimes you'll notice it with the arising. Sometimes you'll notice it part of the way in. Sometimes you may just notice it at the end. But whenever you notice it, turn your mindful attention to that appearance. That too has a lifespan. A thought arises, expresses itself, and passes away. Can mindfulness see that? Can your mindfulness be with a single thought without losing the connection to the present moment? So you will notice the content of the thought. Don't think you have to blank out the content. Mindfulness can take that in. But you'll also see its passing nature. And then you're back in the present. It can be helpful just to support the mindfulness when a thought comes and you notice it, to note it, just the simple label, thinking. And that just says, this is what's going on right now. I know my experience in this present moment is thinking. So in a way, that's like a little stake that mindfulness places in the ground right then. This is my orientation. I know I'm thinking. So practice with that, resting in your meditative home and just noticing any activity of thought as thinking. And for you, it could be words, it could be an image. Just try the same note, thinking.
So in this way, a thought can come and go, and we don't have to give up any of our present moment mindfulness. Thoughts are just another appearance. Once a thought has been noticed, you can return to your home base or with whatever experience is dominant in the next moment, sensation or sound, mood or emotion. Maintaining the continuity of mindfulness through changing appearances. The second way we'll work with thoughts in this meditation is to take thought as the primary focus for limited periods of time. But it's kind of fun to play with this. And what that means is you're going to just sit quietly and just sit in waiting, as it were, for the next thought to appear. Notice it and then return just to waiting, resting. A little bit the image is sometimes used as a cat outside a mouse hole. Cat's very attentive, but not on anything particular yet. So perhaps develop that attentiveness with your anchor, your meditative home. So return to that. Ground the attention, body, sounds, breath. Rest in the anchor. And then have the sense, there are two ways to do this. Have a sense that there's a space around you or a space around your anchor. Or have a sense that there's like a screen in front of your eyes. Blank screen. And you're just waiting with your anchor until the next thought appears.
and you're going to know it and come back to your anchor. So let's try it. Resting in the anchor and becoming mindful of the first thought that arises after the end of this sentence. And then returning the attention to your anchor again. Resting with the anchor. Collecting in the present moment. Opening to the space or that visual screen. And now becoming mindful of the next two thoughts that arise after this sentence. And bringing the attention back to the anchor. And check, was it possible to have more or less continuous mindfulness, even as those two thoughts were appearing and passing? So was it possible to know a thought without being carried out of the present moment. Returning to the anchor, resting again. Opening to the sense of space or visual screen. And now becoming aware of every thought that comes for a limited period of time. I'll end this in a short while, but being aware of every single thought that comes and goes in this brief period. And now returning to your anchor, reestablishing the attention there, firmly connected to the present moment.
And in this next period of the meditation, you might just play with this thought game. Settling in the anchor, and then taking thought as a primary focus for extended periods of time. Anytime you find yourself getting lost in the content or distracted, coming back into the anchor, just resettling in the present moment and opening up again when you feel ready. Taking thought as a primary focus. If it starts feeling like you've lost the mindfulness, drawn into the content of thoughts, just come back to the anchor. Stay as long as needed to really settle again in the present moment. And if you feel inclined, open up again to thought as the primary focus.
And the last of the meditative approaches I wanted to mention this morning has to do with repetitive thought patterns. So you've probably already seen that thoughts often run in certain grooves. If you look at it, thoughts tend to be drawn where there's some emotional charge. Either of problems or of pleasure. So sometimes these run around relationships or work, vacation fantasies, friends, children, parents, money, home. So starting to just to recognize what subjects the thoughts tend to circle around and then developing a specific note for some of the main ones. So in addition to just thinking, you might be specific and call it planning thoughts, remembering thoughts, work thoughts, relationship thoughts, Redecorating the apartment thoughts. Whatever fits that particular train. And then when those thoughts arise, by labeling it with that specific kind of thinking, it gives a little more distance around it. You know, we just start to get familiar. Oh, that's one of the grooves the mind likes to run in. And we get a little more tolerant, accepting. Okay, that's that tune again. So you don't have to go looking for your own particular categories, but just practice as usual. But when one arises that you know comes often, developing a specific label, planning, comparing, judging, analyzing, rehearsing, and so on. So in this part of the meditation, return again to your meditative home, breath, body, sounds. And from there, move easily to whatever naturally draws the attention. A sensation, a sound, a hindrance, energy, mood or emotion, or a thought. And just beginning to recognize the particular patterns of thinking that your own mind likes to go to starting to name some of the different categories that you see again and again. And if nothing particular is drawing the attention, just being content to rest with your anchor.
And one last instruction with a repetitive thought pattern. If there's one kind of thought that comes again and again, and it's really hard to get disconnected, to let it go, and it takes over your mind and a lot of feelings come with it, And it can be helpful to look at what's the emotion that is fueling the thought. And so in this case, with the repetitive thought pattern that feels quite charged and quite hard to let go of, drop down and feel what emotion is accompanying it. For instance, with a lot of planning thoughts, there's an underlying emotion that's really driving the thinking. And that emotion, many times, is more fundamental than the thoughts. The thoughts are just kind of getting spun off from that emotion. So if we want to get a little deeper in relation to that thought pattern, let go of the focus on the thought and drop down to the emotional level. What am I feeling emotionally? And to support that, where am I feeling it in the body? So to stay connected with the emotion, stay connected with where you feel it in the body. Ground the attention there. Just open to and allow the underlying emotion to be there just the way it is. Don't try to get rid of it. Don't need to judge it. Just open, feel it, and allow it. This is a more sure path to understanding than just staying on the level of the thought.
So please continue today to bring thoughts into the field of your mindfulness. It's such an interesting area. You know, thoughts are incredibly useful. The meditation on thought isn't intended to deny the validity or the usefulness of thought. I mean, look at the room we're in. Everything in this room is here because somebody thought about it. From the lights to the windows to the statues to the flowers, so-called. Everything is here because of thought, and we're supported by all of that past thought activity. I mean, we're probably here because our parents had thoughts about each other. So the world is often, you know, born from thoughts, and thoughts very useful in that way. And yet it can also become a kind of trap for us. When I came into meditation, you know, I'd been through a lot of years of school, and what school taught me to do was think. And I had a lot of faith in thinking. I thought as I came into meditation, if I think more, I'll be able to solve my problems through thinking. And then I got a little more sophisticated and I thought, well, I'll be able to think my way into enlightenment, right? Think by understanding the Dharma conceptually, I'll get free. So I had a lot of attachment to thought and I pursued thought a lot on the cushion. And it took me a while to realize it wasn't working. And to trust in the silence as the ground from which real insight comes. Real insight's an intuitive process that sees the world in a new way. That's a creative process. That comes better out of some degree of stillness. So in the middle, in the beginning, I had a lot of desire for thinking. I thought it was going to solve things. And then in the middle, I had a lot of aversion to thinking because I thought it was destroying my silence. So take a look. Which side of thinking are you on? Are you on the desiring side or the aversive side? And what the Buddha tells us is the middle way is the right approach. Don't be desirous with thoughts. Don't be aversive to thoughts. Let thoughts come when they come and go as they go. Shinul, a Korean Zen teacher, put it really well. He said, don't be bothered by the fact that thoughts arise only be concerned that you're late in recognizing them. So this is the key. If we can see them clearly, they're in the field of mindfulness. And that gives us a lot of protection. We see a thought for what it is. Okay, so there were a few questions in the, in the basket. Um, so I have time for at least a couple uh, this morning. And I'm going to start with a small picture one and then go to a big picture one. So the small picture one. Have you ever asked yourself, am I being brainwashed? (laughs) Because sometimes I do, although it's a great feeling. (laughs) So this is a good question. Are Are you being brainwashed here? Is this some kind of cult and, you know, we're indoctrinating you with views to make you our, whatever, devotees at least. So the answer to this, um, the first answer I want to say is not at all. I think it's the opposite of brainwashing. But what's really going on is heart washing. So we're kind of cleaning up our heart from all the unwholesome states that have grown up in it. But let me address the brainwashing piece first. You know, what this implies is that you're being 
um, indoctrinated to believe along a certain line, and there are penalties for not believing. Like we might send you to re-education camp somewhere, you know, in a cold northern monastery, perhaps, <laughs> if you don't follow what's being taught. So I want to put a framework behind the things that we talk about, instructions and Dharma talks, which is check it out for yourself. Don't take anything on our word, but check it out for yourself and see if it's true in your experience. This is really where understanding comes from. Don't rely on what we say. And this goes back, this is uh, right woven into the core of Buddhism. The Buddha was traveling you know, around northern India for 45 years, meeting a lot of different people and teaching. And he wandered into this one village. It was a clan called the Kalamas. And I think he'd been talking about sila, about conduct. And the Kalamas uh, raised the question to him, look, a lot of different teachers come through here. Why should we believe in you? There are teachers who say different things, and our elders say different things, and our books say different things, and different of us believe different things, and we think through different things. Why should we believe you? And the Buddha, and this is a founding principle of his teachings. He said, don't believe it because I say it. Don't believe it because a teacher says it. Don't believe it because an elder says it. Don't believe it because your tradition says it. Don't believe it because you read it in a book. Don't believe it because you figured it out just with reason. Try it out and see what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. And those things that lead to happiness, promote those, follow those, develop them. And those things that lead to suffering, don't follow them. Don't encourage them. Try not to act on them. This is the founding principle in the Dharma, and this is the principle that we all follow. So don't think you have to believe something because we say it or because the Buddha said it. Check it out for yourself. Now, there are some things you're not going to be able to check out for yourself in this course, probably. Does karma work? Is there such a thing as rebirth? In a moment of true enlightenment, is there absolutely no greed, aversion, and delusion? You may not find the answer to those. So those you can take in as reflections. You know, maybe, maybe not. We don't require that you believe in any of those. So you can hold those as open questions. But what we do suggest is when greed, aversion, and delusion are present, there's going to be some suffering. When they're absent from the heart and mind, there's some degree of happiness. That you can check out. And then you can find what things lead to a growth in greed, aversion, delusion, what things lead to a reduction. If it leads to a growth, don't follow it. But if it leads to non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, follow that. That will be for your happiness. So that's the basic message that we want to put out. And we offer the tools we offer really to help you come to your own understanding around these things. So don't have to believe anything. But really what's going on is our hearts are getting purified. You know, there's a whole classical text called the path of purification. And purification basically means a reduction in the elements of greed, aversion, and delusion and corresponding growth in, in happiness. Reduction in suffering, greater happiness. So, not brainwashing, but heartwashing 
is what we think goes on here. Okay, the other question. I thought this was really interesting. The second noble truth says that craving is the uh, source of suffering. Yet at other times, the Buddha pointed to attachment to self as the primary source of suffering. How do we reconcile these two? Have you heard both these teachings? I imagine you have. Second Noble Truth, which is the Buddha's first Dharma talk, definitely said there is dukkha. First Noble Truth, as Carol talked about. Second Noble Truth, the cause of dukkha is craving, tanha, thirst. But then many other places, he pointed to this confusion around the sense of self as really fundamental to the way we get drawn into suffering. So how do we reconcile these two? They are basically the same pointing. Craving is inextricably bound up with self. This is probably most clearly pointed out in the um, chain of dependent origination where there are four links in the middle of dependent origination that are really experiential and really worth studying. I'll probably talk about them in more detail later. But the first of these, there are kind of philosophical links at the beginning, philosophical links at the end. Chain of dependent origination is 12 links that break down the arising of suffering in really fine detail. So the first link, starting with ignorance, get philosophical. The later links which end in um, becoming, birth, and, and death, get more philosophical. But there are these middle links, four of them, that you'll see again and again and again in your own practice. And again, you can check it out. So the middle links are, there's contact. That means sense contact. So contact means the arising experience at one of the six sense doors. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mind door. Basically thoughts and emotions. That's happening all the time. We are all always having contact at these six sense doors, except when we're asleep. Deep sleep seems to stop. Otherwise, waking moments, these contacts are going on all the time. So this is the basic fact of our experience. Next link is feeling tone, Vedana. We'll talk about that more in a couple of days. So feeling tone says that every one of these momentary contacts is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Sometimes we call it neutral. And that feeling tone tends to condition our response. So what's your experience in meditation or in life when something pleasant comes along? We want more. So this is the... Feeling tone of pleasant tends to activate wanting or greed. What's the normal response when something unpleasant comes along? Push away, don't want, make it get away as far as possible. What's the normal response when something neither pleasant nor unpleasant comes along? Something neutral. Go to sleep. Not interesting. Doesn't excite me, doesn't threaten me. Not going to pay attention to that. Now, that's not mindful. Mindfulness is noticing whatever's there. So, feeling tone tends to condition responses of greed, aversion, and delusion if we're not being mindful. So, that leads to the next link, which is craving. 
feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, conditions a response of craving in the absence of mindfulness. A craving is basically made up of, I want that, I don't want that, and I'm going to ignore all the rest. This is a fuller description of what's happening in a moment of craving or tanha. Thirst is wanting things to be different than they are. So we want that pleasant thing to stay forever. We want that unpleasant thing to go away forever. And we don't want to see the rest. So craving is the conditioned and habitual response to feeling tone. Then what happens when the impulse of craving comes? We take a hold of the thing. You know, we take a hold of the thing either to pull it toward us or to push it away. And you can see this moment to moment in your experience. If there's something you don't like, you have to take a hold of it before you can push it. If there's something you want, you have to take a hold of it to bring it closer. Once we've taken a hold of something with clinging, we proliferate I around it. This happens all the time. So start to notice this. Once you've clung to something, and it could be any of these areas of thoughts we've talked about. We have a thought about our relationship, a thought about our work, a thought about a vacation, a thought about our home. When it's taken a hold of, see if the I thoughts don't come up a lot around that topic. I want it this way. I don't want it that way. I like this. I don't like that. I want to change it in this direction. I don't want it to go in this direction. So when we cling to something, I thoughts start from there, and that's the birth of self. So craving, clinging, selfing are all joined together as pointed to by this, these links of dependent origination. And this is something you can see in your moment-to-moment experience. What's your response to pleasant and unpleasant, whether it comes through memory or through present-moment experience? And then watch the I-thoughts kind of grow from that. So, second noble truth, cause of suffering is craving, is really the same as the pointing to selfing, attachment to self. They, they always go together. And then sometimes that's not happening. So start to notice in your day the times when there's not a lot of I-thinking, the times when there's not holding on, the times when there's not craving. How does that feel? Generally more open, more peaceful, more free. End of suffering. Letting go of craving, letting go of self, letting go of suffering. Take a look. Okay. Have a wonderful day of freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.